Welcome to Prism Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we step into the account of beautiful Queen Esther, a woman who shows us godly courage when the stakes couldn't be higher. You're listening to Prism Bible. Just as Jeremiah had prophesied, after 70 years of exile from the land of Canaan, some of those exiles from the kingdom of Judah are allowed to return and rebuild the temple. The destruction of the temple in 586 BC to the reconstruction of a new temple in 516 BC bookend the 70-year period. However, the return to the land is not the mass population return that we might expect. Instead, this return to the land is accomplished in waves. Wave 1 is focused on rebuilding the temple and was led by a man named Zerubbabel. Wave 2 is led by a man named Ezra, who encourages the people in a sort of religious revival and renewal of their commitment to God. They recommit to uphold the law of God that he had given the nation many years earlier when he'd led them out of their Egyptian slavery. Finally, Wave 3 is led by a man named Nehemiah, nearly a hundred years after the first wave led by Zerubbabel. Now, Nehemiah's return in Wave 3 is notable because of something that we discussed in our last step. His return is concurrent with a decree issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes in the year 445 BC. The decree is to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Remember in Step 6, Exile, we mentioned that a timeline was going to start when this decree went out. After the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is issued, there would be 483 years, and then the Messiah would be killed. It's here with Nehemiah in 445 BC that we can credibly start the timeline. In 483 lunar years, how the ancient Israelites counted time, we should expect to see the Messiah killed. Which lands us, not coincidentally, in about the year 32 or 33 AD. The clock has started, and the Messiah is coming. Many Jews have been allowed to return to the land, and in the coming centuries, we'll see empires rise and fall before the kingdom of God makes its advance on the world. Things seem to be looking up for the Jews during this time, but in the midst of these waves of returners, a villain lurks in the background. A villain who attempts total annihilation of all the Jews in Persia. This villain isn't around the city of Jerusalem, however. No, he's in one of the major cities of the Persian Empire. The city of Susa, hundreds of miles east of Jerusalem. A city in which a huge party paves the way for one of the greatest dramas in the Bible. It all starts when the king of Persia throws a huge party. He and his friends are reveling in probable drunkenness and feasting, and the king, Ahasuerus, commands that his wife come to the partiers to show off her beauty. Well, simply put, his wife refuses, and Ahasuerus is in a rage. So the king decides that he will pick a new queen in place of the old one. Soon his advisors suggest a sort of Persia-wide beauty contest, where all the most beautiful women in the empire come to present themselves before the king. The king likes this idea, 
and commands for it to be done. Next we meet Esther, one of the beautiful exiles from the kingdom of Judah. She's encouraged by her uncle, who was something like her adopted father, to take part in this beauty contest, and yet he commands her to hide her Jewish identity. Esther enters the palace, and eventually she meets the king. Ahasuerus likes Esther more than all the other women, and he ends the search. Esther soon becomes his new queen. After a while, Esther's uncle Mordecai gains favor with the king as well. Having made a practice of hanging out outside the palace, Mordecai overhears talk of a couple of palace guards who want to assassinate the king. He quickly makes this known to Esther, who in turn tells the king of this plot against him. The king then sentences these wannabe revolutionaries to hanging, and he further ensures that Mordecai is remembered as the one who saved the king. All seems to be going well for the Jews in Persia, until we meet the last major person in the account, the villain, Haman. Haman is the most senior advisor to the king, and the king decides to honor Haman in this way. He commands that all people in the palace should bow down to Haman when they see him, in order to honor him. However, Haman is enraged when he sees that Mordecai will not bow down to him. Esther's uncle has his reasons, but Haman won't let it go. Bitter at Mordecai, Haman goes to the king and asks that the king issue an edict to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. The king then issues an irrevocable decree and specifies that in about 11 months' time, on a particular date, the Jews are allowed to be annihilated and plundered by all the other people in Persia. The king, having no known connection to the Jews, sees them as simply expendable, especially upon learning that they haven't assimilated into the culture. Haman takes advantage of his ignorance and launches this wicked plot. He'll get Mordecai, and he'll get all Mordecai's people too. Now as you can imagine, when the news reaches the ears of the Jews, there's great sadness and fear, including for Esther and Mordecai. However, Mordecai thinks that Esther may be able to aid the Jews given her position as queen, so he asks her to appeal to Ahasuerus. Part of Persian law in those days stipulated that no one could come unsummoned into the king's presence, and to do so would risk death. But in order not to experience that instant death, the king had to do a particular thing for the one who approached. He had to hold up his royal scepter in approval of your presence in order for you to be spared death. So Esther, knowing that she will have to enter the king's presence unsummoned to plead for her people, begins praying. And after three days, she finally goes into the king's presence. To her relief, Ahasuerus holds up the scepter to Esther. But rather than plead on behalf of the Jews, Esther instead gives the king an invitation to a special dinner. Which is kind of odd. You'd think that she would tell the king exactly what she wants. But apparently she has a strategy here. And part of that strategy is inviting Haman to the same dinner as well. So hours later at this dinner, out of apparent curiosity, Ahasuerus makes quite an offer. He says to Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half of my kingdom will be done. This is Esther's opportunity. So she says, This is my petition and my request. 
May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. Esther doesn't take this opportunity. Instead, she just invites these two men to dinner again. Her strategy is apparently to capitalize on the mounting curiosity in the king. So once again the next evening, probably brimming with questions at this point, the king says, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to the half of my kingdom, will be done. It's this time that Esther replies directly. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. The king replied, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And Esther deals a blow to the villain with these words. The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. At this point, Haman is terrified before the most powerful people in the empire, and he's quickly sentenced to death by the king. Esther and the king then invite Mordecai to join them, as Esther reveals her Jewish identity and her relationship to Mordecai. And soon they launch a plan. They decide to write another irrevocable edict, where on the same day that the Jews were to be slaughtered, that they may assemble and defend themselves against any who would attack them on that day. This was a great signal from the highest office in the land that Jews were not to be attacked. Instead, the Jews had been granted favor by the king. And many months later, the day finally comes, a day in which the Jews overpowered all those who tried to annihilate them. It was only by the courage of this young Jewess that the people were saved from destruction. The great holocaust of the Old Testament had been avoided, and Haman, the aspiring Hitler of the Old Testament, was hanged on the gallows. It's apparent through this story that God has had his hand in these events, and it's because of God's faithfulness to his promises. Despite the Israelite disobedience to God's law in the land of Canaan, God didn't forget his promises especially those promises made to Abraham that he would become a great nation with many offspring in the land of Canaan, and that through one of his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. It's through Esther and the Jews saved by her actions that God preserves the people of Abraham so that his plan and his promises continue. God remains faithful and his plans endure. And so closing the Old Testament we find that many people from the southern kingdom of Judah have been allowed to return to Canaan. They've recently escaped annihilation, and they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem with a clock ticking. Despite this time of distress and difficulty, hope remains. The seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, and the seed of David, the one who they've all been waiting for will be coming, and coming soon. Join us next time as we meet the long-awaited Messiah, the King destined for death. Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. 
In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.